You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas event, Environmental Behaviour Change, Harnessing the Power of Volunteers and Grassroots Campaigners. My name is Fiona Allon, and I'll be chairing this evening's event. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now, like most of you here, I'm sure, this topic, environmental behaviour change, is close to both my heart and my mind. How do we actually do environmental sustainability? How can we do it better? And what can we learn from the kinds of on-the-ground practice that we're going to hear about this evening? And I'm looking forward to the discussion very much. I'll just say a few words about tonight's format. We have three speakers, Ruth Barkin, Terry ann Johnson and Harriet Spark, and I'll introduce each speaker in turn shortly. Each speaker will give a short presentation, 10 minutes or so, which will be followed by a panel discussion amongst the three speakers and then a general Q&A in which I encourage everyone to take part and, take part and ask questions. Now, our first speaker tonight and the organiser of this terrific Sydney Ideas panel is Associate Professor Ruth Barkan. Ruth is based in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, and her research interests include sustainability and everyday practice, domestic suburban chicken keeping, academic labour in the contemporary university, consumer cultures, pedagogy, and nudity and nudism, and much more. She is the author of a number of books, including Academic Life and Labour in the, new, in the New University, Hope and Other Choices, Complementary and Alternative Medicine, Bodies, Therapy, Senses, and Nudity, A Cultural Anatomy. Now, Ruth will be giving us a brief overview of some of the academic perspectives that are relevant for tonight's panel. So please join me in welcoming Associate Professor Ruth Barkin. Thanks. Thanks for that welcome, Fiona, and thank you for coming out on a winter's night. Um, uh, we're probably all lucky it's a winter's night, so I wasn't tempted to bring earlier my uh, earlier research interest into nudity into tonight's event. Fortunately, just as well as not summer. So, uh, as Fiona said, my job is to give a bit of a theoretical uh, background before we hand over to the two people who really know what they're talking about, who've been very involved in on-the-ground uh, campaigns. So I'm going to start with two truisms, contradictory truisms of everyday life. And the first is a phrase that's no doubt very familiar to us all, uh, probably something we all use from time to time. I may not be perfect, but I do my bit, we might say. Or if everybody does their bit, we can change the world. And I start with this phrase precisely because it's commonsensical and rather comforting in its vision of change as nothing more or different or threatening than everyone pulling their weight and making a few minor changes. 
it's usually something we ordinary people say. But I was interested when I saw it popping up here in a corporate setting in a, um, a, a US duty-free company on World Environment Day where they said, I pledge to do my bit, do you? And they say, we're not doing corporate social responsibility. And they say, hold on, here's the thing, it's not our social responsibility because it's personal responsibility. Every single individual is personally responsible, they say. So they go on with, we're making some pledges, and look, here, here are five pledges you can do, which basically turn off the engine at the red light, unplug your charger when it's charged, and so on. There we have it. Corporate social responsibility has become personal responsibility here, and personal responsibility seems to amount to not much more than switching the lights off. Underpinning this idea of doing our bit is a suite of assumptions about the relationship between understanding, caring, responsibility, choice and actions. Once we know, we'll care. Once we care, we'll take responsibility. Taking responsibility means making a series of good choices. Well, this is all very well and good, except that it doesn't actually work out that way. We don't do our bit, or at least our bit is less than we aspire to and far less than is needed. So this leads me to the second of my truisms, and it's the so-called environmental values behaviour gap. That is an often noted discrepancy between what people state their values are and how they actually um, uh, act in the world. And there's a family of similar concepts. There's also the attitude behaviour gap, and the intention behaviour gap. And these terms refer to something that's very simple and very true. What we say we'll do often doesn't match what we actually do. And this is as true of environmental behaviours as it is of quitting smoking, drinking less, exercising more. And, and the gap isn't an aberration, it's more like the norm and there's plenty of empirical research that shows that. So what are we supposed to make of this discrepancy between our professed values and our actions? I mean, you could say, for example, well, we're all hypocrites. And perhaps any of you who've worked tirelessly on some campaign, whether it's an environmental one or a school fundraiser, you may, like me, have given occasional rein to this lament when the volunteers don't show up or the people you're trying to help just don't get it and refuse to make seemingly easy adjustments to their behaviour. And certainly at a larger scale in terms of the way we talk about consumer culture, these kind of moralised accounts are really very, very common. Western consumers figure as passive, lazy, greedy, selfish addicts. And here's just a random sample. This is from a 1960s book by Guy Debord called The Society of the Spectacle. The front cover is production and the back cover is consumption, these passive uh, uh, people mindlessly consuming. But you see it in Adbusters, this group of, shall we note, uh, women grasping the feminised masses greedily uh, doing the um, Black Friday sales. Books like Affluenza or The Selfish Capitalist. Um, this is an Adbusters video, a Buy Nothing Day video, and they open with The Consumer Pig and so on. Yeah, are we happy yet? So it's, it's, these moralisations are an absolute staple of anti-consumer discourse and visualisation and they still uh, circulate. They've circulated for most of the 20th century. Two of its core tropes are addiction and seduction. 
And both of these are feminised motifs or tropes. We've got the famous femme fatale, a feminised figure for the temptress who stands in for the temptations of consumer culture. But we've also got the figure of the irrational, weak, frivolous, emotionally driven, easily led ditzy female shopper who, you know, shopped in 1950s sitcoms. And just in case you've got any doubt that the figure of the addic uh, person addicted to shopping is a feminised one, try typing addicted to shopping into Google Images and, you know, this is what you get, a whole bunch of women and parcels, uh, pages and pages of it. So there are positive versions of this trope that represent consumption and shopping as a set of skills and you get them in this ironic retro version and you get them in more uh, serious things, you get them in old game shows like Supermarket Sweep, where you know if you really know how to shop, you're going to win. Um, <clears throat> and there's also a more serious version of understanding consumption as a set of skills. It's one whose values base is more masculinised. It's the rational, calculating, careful, um, information-seeking uh, consumer. Women often uh, occupy that kind of role, but the values base is a masculinised one contrasted with a sort of emotion-driven um, uh, victim of seduction. So this trope of the female shopper uh, addicted to shopping or seduced by the charms of consumerism, it's so well-worn that it's now been recuperated into advertising itself, um, often ironically, sometimes straight-faced, straight and in this form of the go on, you know you want to kind of motif, which is a, now a staple. So even if these moralised critiques of consumerism were 100% true, we're all lazy, greedy, passive addicts, um, even if that were completely true, well, the power of the critique is muted since it's been so substantially incorporated back into advertising itself. But there are other less moralistic, less person-centred attempts to explain why we don't do what we say we'll do. And they ask the question, what if social change doesn't come about as the aggregate of thousands of small individual actions that will all add up? What if something more orchestrated, more structural, more large-scale is required? That's the view of Elizabeth Shove, who and, and many others, who's a leading exponent of a branch of social theory called social practice theory. And according to Shove, the question, how can we bring about environmental change, too often just slides into a more narrow one, how can we get people to change? And she says climate change and other environmental problems are often unreflexively framed as a problem of human behaviour. But what if how do we get people to change is the wrong question in the first place? So Shove uses the letters A, B, C to describe this dominant model of change. A is attitudes, B is behaviour, C is choices. And she says this model is both a theory and a kind of politics of change. And it indicates the extent to which responsibility for responding to climate change, in this case, is thought to lie with individuals whose behavioural choices will make the difference. And so this theory underpins many environmental behaviour change programs and tactics which take the need for information, persuasion, instruction and motivation as their starting point. So you pardon me here, I got a little bit obsessed with um, bins, the bins that are teaching us stuff, these pedagogical bins. Well done. And my envelope, uh, a Sydney water bill is teaching us stuff on its envelope, but here I got back to bins again I'm afraid. They're just, you know, bins that teach us things. 
So um, I'm not saying that these widespread campaigns aren't an important part of the picture. Of course they are. And I'm an educationalist, so I'm not saying that education doesn't matter either, um, even these days. But I'm with Chauve when she says that this model, this dominant model, obscures two things. The first is the extent to which governments actually sustain unsustainable practices and ways of life by things like fuel tax rebates or by subsidising farms on agriculturally marginal land or uh, whatever it might be, you know, uh, t refusing to tax big polluters or whatever. And the second is that it obscures the role that governments have in structuring options and possibilities where they buy, for example, subsidising car manufacturer rather than solar, having royal commissions about wind power and so on. And to this I'd also add that it obscures the key role that governments can play as consumers themselves because uh, their procurement practices. If you think about the Department of Health and the Department of Education, for example, uh, imagine if sustainable building codes and procurement practices and so on went right through those. Governments are also really big consumers themselves. Uh, and I saw something just in the train coming in today too about how, you know, um, more analyses of the household of the waste in landfill in Australia, and household waste is is not even half of it. A lot of it is industrial road build, building and commercial waste. So it's not that we shouldn't do our bit, uh, but the dominance of that discourse of "come on, do your bit" is is problematic when there are other much deeper and structural things going on. And governments talk about then the market as though it were an autonomous force out there. Even while, nonetheless, at the same time, we all know we're actively having conversations all the time about how we should structure markets. We're having the NEG debate, I'll use some inverted commas around that, at the moment, you know, how should we structure this energy market? And we all, and politicians all participate in that, but then there's this the market as though somehow it was discreet. So there's a lot of vested interest in the individual responsibility line because it allows us to avoid asking the deep paradigmatic questions that we really do have to ask, like can we have economies based on growth, shouldn't we be reducing what we consume rather than disposing of it responsibly, isn't recycling perhaps just an energy and water intensive mechanism for keeping us buying stuff and throwing it out and so on. These are the big questions we really need to be uh, discussing. But, and here now I'm going to point to the other side of the coin, if we wait for governments and corporations to act, we'll be waiting a long time. And of course, leadership has, in a way, always come from below as well as from above. And I'm, I'm intrigued by these uh, uh, emails from NGOs at the moment. We have to take the lead ourselves now. Let's stop waiting for government. They're saying, love this one, real climate leadership rises from the grassroots up leave the federal government behind and lead the way. And of course, the ability for ordinary people to shape the bigger picture depends on the issue at hand. I think part of the um, uh, amazing momentum around the world on plastics at the moment is because it's so hard for us to get governments to do anything about climate change. Plastic is something we feel we can do something about. So tonight, I'm really excited that we have two successful environmental campaigners here to share their insights. And their experiences should allow us to open up a much more complex picture than this picture that I've painted at the beginning of kind of big institutions and ordinary people. Because in between and uh, working across uh, those kind of forces, 
there's a much more rich and complex set of social networks, I like to think of them as social ecosystems, that are shaping behaviours and that are intervening at that bigger level. And both of, our of tonight's speakers are engaged in campaigns that urge, encourage and allow individuals to act, but they also create collectivities and those actions also have an influence uh, beyond the immediate sphere. They have an influence on councils, on small businesses and even on large corporations and government. So the kinds of campaigns we'll hear about tonight are not only uh, encouraging us to consume responsibly, but they're intervening through these new social mechanisms uh, in much bigger agendas. So our panel tonight explores the actions of individuals not just as a mode of fight back, but as a means of ownership, leadership and intervention in complex circuits of power. And some of the kind of things that I really hope we'll learn this evening are from our speakers are, you know, which campaigns have been easy and which harder and why? What kinds of tactics have worked? How traditional protest forms are being changed and supercharged by new forms of social media? I'm interested in the new social networks that are being created. The collapsing, too, I'm interested in the collapsing in the boundary between work and play, in the form that pleasures that people are taking um, through a whole, and the leisure that they're making out of things like plogging, which is jogging for rubbish, or kayaking for rubbish in Copenhagen, or sewing bags together, or cleaning up, or strawkling, and you'll learn about strawkling very soon. And I'm interested in the relationship between these pleasures and deeper kinds of attachment, satisfaction, and meaning making, and community building that's going on, repair cafes and their sharing of eggs and, uh, and uh, so on uh, with the revival of domestic chicken keeping, which I've been studying. So to me, it's about the question of environmental leadership. What does leadership from below look like and what helps make it effective? So with that, lead on, Terri-Ann. Hi. Oh, the room's grown since we first walked in. So thank you very much for having me tonight. Um, just want to start with talking about where Clean Up Australia sees itself. We actually see ourselves as belonging to the community. So when that logo in the corner was first designed by the team at Mojo in 1988, what they did was they drew it with their left hand because they wanted it to look like it was, a bit, it was drawn by a child. And they wanted it to be part of the community from the very, very beginning. And that's been our credo all the way through. It's not about us. It's not about the people who happen to work there at that point in time. It's about those hundreds of thousands of volunteers that have been going out there for the last 30 years picking up other people's rubbish. And that's where it all begins. So if we have a look at, so as I mentioned, it's been 30-odd years ago. It's a partnership with the community. It started in Sydney, in Sydney Harbour, when 40,000 people heeded the call to go and clean up around the foreshores of Sydney Harbour. And that was in 1989. Went national in 1990. Went global in 1993 in partnership with UNEP. So we've now got millions of people around the world who are going out there and doing their own thing. And the key thing here is that we don't tell them what to do. We don't tell them where to go and we don't tell them what to do. 
we just give them some support along the way. So in the global campaign, they actually go out and they do lots of things. Sometimes they clean up, sometimes they run educational seminars. In Singapore, they ran their plastic bag campaign around health issues because when plastic bags lie on the ground, they breed mosquitoes and mosquitoes lead to malaria. It was a health campaign to get rid of plastic bags. So there's really great new ways of getting people engaged in a solution and bringing them along a journey. And that's what we're all about. So what do we actually do? We bring communities together. We actually see ourselves as a marketing agency. We don't see ourselves as environmentalists. I'm not an environmentalist. I do not pretend to be an environmentalist. I'm, a normal, I'm just a person. I happen to have an interest in, in environmental issues and I happen to have got really caught up in it when I started as a skilled volunteer with Clean Up in 2003. I just got hooked because it's absolutely fascinating. And along the journey I've worked with some of the most amazing people, scientists and innovators and business people. And in most cases, everyone I've ever had the privilege of working with in this journey has been really passionate about finding a solution. They really, really want to see the back of all of this stuff that is ending up in their precious environment because there's a great sense of ownership. We're not government funded, so we rely very heavily on people who will either give us their time or give us their donations or in the case of events, we get sponsorship associated with those. And that way we can then provide free materials to our communities. So we have said all the way along, it should not cost anybody more than their time to be involved in a cleanup event. And that's what we'd stick with. So we encourage and support people to take action. And it's non-confrontational action. We don't tie ourselves to bulldozers or to trees. We don't encourage people to become arrested. If they want to do that, they join Greenpeace. If they want to be with us, they come along and they start working and they work together and they work collectively and they grow influence and then they use what we call political power. You see, I don't think government exists. You and I are the government. We elect them. It's our fault. But it's also our responsibility to keep them in line. So we have the power here and we can change government and we can change those people in power and we have to continually remind them and I don't know how many times I've had the discussion with a politician, you seem to forget who it is you are representing. You're not here for you. You're not here for your government. You're not here for your party. You are here for your constituents. And it's about time you remembered that. And so we have lots of people write to their ministers and go to their ministers. And suddenly, these guys, particularly when you hand out their email addresses, they see how serious people are about this. And that's how we won CDL in New South Wales. So everybody, most people, become engaged, first of all, in the National Event Clean Up Australia Day. And as you can see from the stats there, it's got some pretty amazing stats associated with it. It's, um, it's you know, half a million volunteers a year get out there and clean up across more locations than there are postcodes or post offices in Australia. So they're passionate about this. Last, last March, over 670,000 people joined the call. And a lot of it is because they are locally motivated. And a lot of it starts when you have some sort of a life change. So what happens is, at this stage of your life, if you're at university, you're really busy. You're getting to and from uni. You're going, you're walking through the park to get to the bus. You've got your headsets on. You're adjusting to your phone. You're catching up with all your friends. You get on the bus, you go. You don't actually see much about that path. 
And then a young child comes into your life through some way, shape or form and suddenly you look at the world from a different height. And you take that child into the park and you suddenly think, oh my goodness, look at all the stuff that's under those bushes that I didn't see before. I don't want that child who's now in my care to be um, picking up that rubbish and eating it. So you start ferreting around and removing it. And before you know where you are, you've started talking about this to other people. And suddenly, once your little park gets cleaned up, you've got a great sense of ownership over that space and it's not going to be acceptable. And if you see somebody drop something in your park, you'll be quick to remind them that that's not okay. It's not okay to do that because this park now belongs to me. It's my sense. I have now have a sense of purpose of being part of this. And that's what's really important about Clean Up Day. We mobilise and inspire people to take action and to keep taking action. Because I can guarantee you, once you've cleaned up that park, you won't look at it the same way again. Because suddenly you're in a different zone. So what happens is, how do we actually get to people? And this is a really key one because Traditionally, for a long period of time, we had a great way of getting to people. It's called traditional media. And you build up all these fantastic relationships with journalists and you get lots of editorial. And, and we still have a great relationship with traditional media. We get about 22,000 in, um, references and interviews associated with Day every year. They're, they're, they're tremendous. They support us really, really well. But suddenly, everybody in this room is no longer buying the Sydney Morning Herald or the Telegraph or they're not watching the news at 6 o'clock or they're not doing that. They're actually streaming what they want when they want it. So they're getting it all day around. So for those of us who are trying to get to you, it's shifted. It's shifted a lot. We have to actually now start thinking a lot more laterally about where you're getting your information. Because regardless of what we do here and how much advertising we put on the television through a community service announcement that you might see if you're an insomniac at 2am, um, and the traditional media that's more going digitalised and the social media, which is great. You know, we've got lots of great followers and things like that. We've still got a lot of people saying to us, oh, gee, you know, you don't have the presence you used to have. Like, we haven't seen anything about you for a while. And that's because we're not in tune with where you're getting your information. So the key thing for us is to find out where you're getting your information, who you're hearing it from, and the biggest one is word of mouth. Of all the referees that when people tell us where they heard about it, it's because other people are talking about it. So for us, it's vital that every single contact anybody has with Clean Up Australia is positive. That they know that if they ring us, we will return their call if we don't know the answer straight away. We'll find the answer for them. We'll help them. We'll give them the support that they need. That's vitally important because otherwise, they'll just get browned off and go away. And they'll lose momentum. And once they lose momentum, we won't get them back. This is where they clean up. Schools and things like that tend to stick to school grounds. So the school grounds is fairly high. That's primary schools. So we engage with over 2,500 primary schools across the country. And the key thing here is trying to get our smaller people to recognise the fact that when they drop something on the ground, there's nobody else that's going to pick it up. It's not like at home. Somebody else is going to pick it up for them. They have to pick it up themselves. And so that chip packet that they left behind after lunch two days ago, guess what? It's still there. And it's going to be there until they do something about it. So they need to take responsibility for what they're doing. Key one for the community is parks. That's a big one for the communities. Closely followed by the beaches 
and the roadways. Because the big thing for us is that we Aussies love our great outdoors and so we like spending time out there. And so that's why this campaign took off so well in Australia because it's really nice to be out there, except when it's raining. It's nice to be out there on a nice sunny day and you pick up rubbish and you get hot and you get dirty and you get tired. But gee what, it's pretty rewarding when you look around and all that stuff that was under those bushes is now in these yellow and white bags. You can go, gee, you know what? I did that, it's a very quick fix. This is what they're telling us they're finding. So when you look at the grouped rubbish items, there's a lot of non-food packaging out there, and that's things that are like your cigarette um, boxes, like packets, and your lighters, and your paint tins, and your things like that. As Ruth talked about, a lot of the waste that we're generating is not necessarily domestic waste. There's a lot of construction waste, and a lot of construction waste is ending up in our environment because there's a lot of illegal dumping. And the reason there's illegal dumping is it's so expensive to take it to the tip. And it's so expensive to take it to the tip because landfill has a finite life. And so the waste management industry is facing a dilemma. They've hit, they're hitting their caps. And that's why we're about to see a lot of innovation in waste management industry because they've had a free run up until now. They've made a lot of money out of landfill and that's about to stop. When you get to the individual items, cigarette butts, God, give me patience. Now, we might have seen a reduction in cigarette smoking in this country, but guess what? Everyone's smoking outside. And so when they used to put stuff into an ashtray and they were reasonably domestically trained, now they seem to have lost the inability to take that thing from their hand and get it into a bin. Now I do see exceptions and I'm, re I'm, I'm the one who goes up to people who put cigarette butts in the bin and says thank you. And they go, oh Jesus, they expect me to, you know, to be upset with them. My chairman on the other hand is the one who bails people up. You drop that on the ground, you lousy bastard. You pick that up and sort of... One of these days you'll be decked. Um, so that's, that's the individual items that we're picking up the most. And this is a pretty typical photo that they send us in before they start. So we ask them to tell us, just send us in, just pick a spot, any spot, and tell us what you're finding. And as you can see here, it's a pretty good capture of our single-use disposable society. Who was born before 1977? OK, we're the only people in the room who have lived without a plastic bag. They were introduced here in 1977. So we've got nearly two generations of people who haven't shopped without a single-use plastic bag. And that's why they're so upset now. Because all of a sudden, this thing that is just part of your shop has been taken away. And it's, oh, oh, but, but, but I'm really good. I take it home and I use it as a bin liner. Yeah, but guess what? You're not going to be doing that for much longer. So they're hoarding them, if you like my father. Now what happens now is that when we get all this information, so our amazing volunteers send us back this information and we aggregate it and we try and work out what are the, the key things and then we look at trends over the last 30 years of what have been the key material types that are out there and we also do counts of rubbish items and we share that with the scientific community, with the CSIRO and with local governments across the country. And we actually share, we freely share it with anyone who asks for it. And the reason we freely share it is we don't believe it belongs to Clean Up Australia, it belongs to the people who've given it to us, it belongs to you. And what we do with that information is we influence change. So we influence legislative change. So we tell state governments that's the number of bottles and cans that we could 
get out of the environment if we introduced a CDL. Now, CDL is a fantastic thing. It's great, fantastic. New South Wales has it. I've been working on it for 13 years. It's about bloody time we got it. It's such a low-hanging fruit. Now, what happens is, you don't see bottles and cans lying on the street anymore because some kids picked it up and that's a great thing. It's 10 cents. If I could just get the same thing with cigarette butts. Okay. But we're really conscious that, look, this is great. This is absolutely, overwhelmingly fantastic that people are still going out there 30 years after this event was introduced and picking up rubbish. And I think that's an amazing credit to the people of Australia that they do that. But I'm very conscious that goodwill runs out. And what we need to do is we need to stop this stuff getting out there in the first place because that's a lot more effective than continuing to try and pick it up. And so what we did was we went out to the people and we said to you, okay, all of you volunteers, you tell us, what are the five things you most hate seeing out there? And guess what? It's not rocket science, what they came up with. They came up with bags, butts, bottles, takeaway food and straws. Straws is a little bit of a surprise because until I started to dive in and started picking up things from people like Harriet about straws and looking at our data more closely, I hadn't actually recognised how many straws are out there. Straws are the 12th most reported item on Clean Up Australia Day. And of course it was not hitting my radar because I tend to focus on the top 10. And so it was number 12 and has been either 11, 12 or 13 for most of the years and it is growing so quickly now that it's really and you know what is ideal about these things they're tangible and that's what makes it work when we get out there because people can see them and that's the difference between getting people engaged and getting people to change their behaviors if they can see what it is they need to do and then they'll do it so for us, we believe that change is a journey. I don't think I'm going to change anyone's behaviour through one clean-up day, but what I might do is I might open their eyes. And it's like any, any journey, you actually have to know what options you have. So if I'm planning a trip somewhere, I do a bit of research about where I want to go, what I want to see, how I want to get there, all the rest of it. That's what we've got to do with these people. We've got to take them on a journey. There's the table of knowledge in the pub or there's the taxi driver or the Uber driver. They've got more knowledge than all of us put together. Just ask them. And what they'll do is that they'll expound to you what they think is going on around the country and you sit and listen to them and they really are a barometer of what people are thinking. And it's very important that we remember that people are thinking lots of things. So don't get swayed by the shock jocks. Don't get swayed by the do-gooders. Actually start listening to what it is your followers are doing and then you'll know what their options are and how limited or how broad their options are on what they can do and then hand it back to them. And once you've given them a sense of what it is they can do and help boost their confidence, then they're in a position to start exercising their choices. And with something like cleanup, it's not, um, it's not in any way dangerous. So you know, I'm not going to get arrested if I write to my MP about the fact that I support a change in legislation or that I'm prepared to go out and pick up some rubbish or I'm prepared to say no to a plastic bag. Classic was, over one million shoppers voluntarily said no to plastic bags in Harris Farm outlets in a two-month period. And all they asked them to do was just say no. And over one million of them felt empowered enough to say, you know what, I don't actually need that. I can take a box. And the good thing that Harris Farm did was they gave them options. So they gave them an alternative. They gave them something that they could do. They didn't leave them in the lurch. We've then got to keep it simple. 
And it's really, really important that we keep our messaging focused and simple. Because the more complicated we make it, the harder it is to make a decision and the harder it is to actually do something concrete. So the key thing for us is keeping it really, really simple. And then the other key thing that we found is if you can see results. Okay, so I'm done. These are the people who we work with on who, are, who make it happen. The key one is you start with the inventors, you then work through business. Business is the ones that are going to commercialise this stuff. They're the ones who are going to make the packaging changes. The retailers in the supply chain are for us are really valuable because they've got so much influence. Waste management reform. In this country, waste management has not kept up with innovation, therefore there's a whole heap of bioplastics you cannot dispose at this point in time. That's just bullshit. Government. In order of focus on who can do anything, local's best, state's got some influence, the feds don't bother. <laughs> and then here we go with what works and what doesn't. And as you can see, there's some examples here of what we've seen has been the outcomes. And it's really all about giving people the power to say yes or say no. And that's the really key thing here. And all those really great, yeah, ban the bag, the mud movement, responsible runners, composting, return and earn, some clean-up stuff and straw cleaning are all really good examples of where people are empowered to do something real. Now, down the bottom there, there's some of those, and I'm really happy to discuss, they were actually ours that didn't work. And the reason they didn't work was this. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Harriet, and I'm the founder of Grumpy Turtle Design and Operations Straw. Um, before I get stuck into sharing some insights from Operation Straw that I've learnt over the past year, I wanted to spend a moment talking about grumpy turtles, which is one of my favourite subjects. Uh, when I was 19, I moved up to the Great Barrier Reef and became a dive instructor. And I still really vividly remember my very first dive on the Great Barrier Reef. It was so colourful and beautiful and vibrant. And as cliche as it sounds, it really uh, shaped my future path and, and showed me that I wanted to spend my career working to protect this area. Fast forward a few years and I ended up working at Manly Sea Life Sanctuary and this is where I met the original grumpy turtle herself, Myrtle the turtle. I spent a lot of time uh, underwater with Myrtle the turtle and the longer I spent with her the more I realised that she probably looked pretty grumpy uh, because of what we're doing to the ocean. We are overfishing the oceans, we're making them more acidic um, and we're filling them with plastic. And so with that in mind and at the same time I started running uh, campaigns to change uh, people's behaviour in my local community. Um, as part of this, it was all volunteer-led, so marketing design was created by myself um, and is now deep in the vaults of Grumpy Turtle Design and will never see the light of day. And this really illustrated to me, quite literally, how important it is to have great communication when it comes to effectively conveying messages surrounding environmental sustainability. And so Grumpy Turtle Design, which is my social media and design business, uh, is really founded by this ethos. We love working with uh, businesses, organisations and people who share this ethos of making turtles a little less grumpy and looking after this blue planet of ours. I also love uh, running campaigns and my most recent has been Operation Straw which has taken place in Manly. Manly Cove is the cove where you hop off the ferry and it's the first little bay to the right that you see. It's home to little penguins, we've seen sea turtles there, cuttlefish and it's a beautiful bay in its own right. It's also filled to the brim with plastic straws. Myself and an ex-colleague at uh, Manly Sea Life Sanctuary used to snorkel here a lot and collect the plastic straws. And we used to find them in huge numbers, take photos of these straws and throw them up on social media. And people were always really, really shocked by the amount of straws that we were finding in this area. 
And when we think about it, the straw seems like a bit of a ubiquitous item, you know. We don't really think about it. It comes in our smoothie, it comes in our cocktail. We drink it, we throw it out. We don't ever have a second thought about it. But when we could show people how much of an impact these items were having by sharing photos like these on our oceans, it really started to change their perception and allow them to see the impact that single-use plastic items like plastic straws have on our ocean. So this led me to think, imagine if we could collect data over consistent period of time and show people the impact that items like straws were having on the environment. And this is how Operation Straw was born. This is a quote that really, really resonates with me. It's from one of my favourite environmental organisations called Tangaroa Blue. And basically it says, if all we do is clean up, that's all we'll ever do. I love a good beach clean as, next as, the, uh, as much as the next grassroots activist, um, but it's really important that we're not only cleaning the beach. Ultimately, we don't want to be swimming around the ocean and pulling all this rubbish out. We want to stop it at its source. And this is something that I really wanted to embed in Operation Straw. We developed Operation Straw to be a two-phase project. So the straws were run over summer every single weekend so we could collect that consistent set of data. In the beginning, I thought it would just be myself and my partner swimming around every weekend collecting these plastic items. Um, but what I didn't expect was the huge community uptake this project has had. And the community uptake has really helped shape Operation Straw and turned it into something that I didn't imagine it could become. We had more than three people, 300 people uh, volunteer their time over summer and we collected more than 2,500 plastic straws from the ocean. This sounds like a lot, but when we think about the fact that Australians use almost $3 billion a year, it's uh, a drop in the ocean. The second phase was business engagement to encourage the local community uh, to stop using straws and to stop single-use plastic at its source. Basically, after running the straw calls every weekend over summer, is what we did is we hosted a business engagement training night. And this is where we got all of our volunteers that attended over summer to join us and we gave them the tools and training they needed to actually go into the community, engage with businesses and open up a dialogue surrounding single-use plastic and their reduction of it. Uh, we've been working with other local organisations in Manly and since Operation Straw started, more than 40 businesses have gone plastic straw free. <laughs> Um, going and talking to businesses is really intimidating. It's a harder sell than getting someone to come and jump in the ocean in summer and go for a swim. But what we found that by running a straw call every single weekend over summer is that we formed a community who were interested in coming back and seeing how many straws we were going to find this weekend. And then because they came every weekend, they usually came more than once, um, they were committed to seeing the project through and coming and doing the harder part, which is going and talking to businesses. So some of the key learnings that I've taken away from this project so far is that single-use plastic is overwhelming, you know. If we walk into the supermarket at the end of our day of work looking for something to eat for dinner, everything is wrapped in plastic and you can immediately feel like throwing your hands up in the air and saying, there's nothing I can do about this, what's the point? So what we did is rather than focusing on single-use plastic in general, we decided to focus on one item and that is plastic straws. In Manly Cove, there is so much plastic. We've focused on plastic straws and that's what has got a lot of attention, but the bay is very, very dirty and there's lots of different plastics in there. But I truly believe if we'd focused on the amount of rubbish we find there in general, we wouldn't have been able to generate the traction that we have. And that's simply because by honing in on our message and focusing on one thing, we make it really simple for people to see the bigger picture by starting with a smaller one.
Strawkling is, at the end of the day, just going for a swim and picking up rubbish, but that doesn't have the same ring to it as strawkling. So by coining this activity as strawkling, we've been able to put a fun spin on an activity that otherwise is just known as swimming. Um, we've also made sure that we've kept everything really fun and light and positive and welcoming. We've all seen the video of the turtle with the straw stuck up its nose, and that definitely has a place, but I think sometimes instead of shocking people into action, we can actually make them feel overwhelmed and powerless to act. So throughout Operation Straw, we've made sure that everything's really welcoming, we don't want to shame anyone, we want them to be empowered and take action, um, and that's resonated through all of our communications material. Another thing that we've found has been incredibly helpful is social media. And um, if you can kind of see that little picture, we've had businesses actually posting on social media and saying, we see what you're doing in the cove and we just wanted to let you know that we've stopped serving plastic straws because of it, which is really powerful. Um, at the end of the day, we want people to take uh, real-world action for these real-world problems. And social media is an amazing tool for getting people to events or sharing information or inspiring people to act, but it shouldn't be the only tool that we use, and this is something that I'm really wary of. So I love to use it to get people coming to a straw call, to get them to come to a business blitz, but I love to make sure that we're actually out there and creating action, not relying too heavily on social media. If we have a look around the world right now, plastic bag bans are having a moment. Um, last week, or this week, but very recently, Woolworth's plastic bag ban came into force, and while it has had a few teething problems, it's a testament to grassroots activism and the power of behaviour change. Um, Woolworths has not done this out of the goodness of their heart, but they've done it because people have demanded change and consumers have signalled that they want change and they don't want plastic bags anymore. And I think this is an amazing and a sign of the times. I believe at the end of the day that there is a place for all different kinds of activism and action in the environmental sphere. Um, our planet is in no shortage of issues that need tackling and we need all hands on deck to be able to solve these problems. Last week I saw this article in the Sydney Morning Herald and I actually read a rebuttal to it which you can find on the One Million Women blog um, if you're interested. But basically the author was saying that 50% of the rubbish floating in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is ghost nets or fishing nets. And while this may be the case, and this is a huge problem that needs tackling, it's not the same as asking somebody to not put a straw in their cocktail or not grab a plastic bag on their way out of the supermarket. They're two different issues and I think that we can have action on both of them. And we need to make sure we're empowering people to take action on these, not disempowering them with articles like this. At the end of the day, I believe that we need to stop saying what I'm one person, what can I do? And instead flip this to what can I do as one person? Because if we have a look around, there is so much that we have the power to create change on. Thank you. Thank you.